0: Out back Danger Club and How I Became Invisible vocalist Dot joins us this week to talk about the minor alternative hit Stars by Hum. The band's non-linear storytelling and spacey lyrics fit in well in the post-grunge era of Bush and Soul Asylum, but poor album sales and an accident on tour led to an abrupt end to the band. So did they bring the thunder, or should they just look at the stars? Listen to find out.
1: It is all you need to make the money guaranteed, and you can live off royalties
0: forever. And it makes me wonder, is it just a wonder, or is it one-hit thunder? Okay, so end dot today we are talking about hum and right off the bat, why why did you choose hum?
2: I mean very specifically because I love this song. It it always struck me as like it's it's a weird thing in that it's a song that I when I mentioned it to some people they don't know what I'm talking about. And yeah. I'm like, but it's a this was this was a hit. This was everywhere. This like this was on the radio. I don't listen to the radio anymore, but it was on it all the time. And it still sticks with me very specifically because of the sound like the, the actual sound of the song.
0: Yeah, it's it's very distinctive. And, you know, I knew this song at the time. I remember it being on 120 minutes. I don't know that I heard it on the radio so much, but it was around and it was definitely very popular. And I think that the, this song gained a lot of popularity as time went on. I know it was in a... Commercial later on and things like that. But I think what's crazy about this song is that I believe this was the first ever, and I don't know if they fit exactly into this category, but I think this was the first ever shoegaze song that I ever heard, if you want to put it into that category. Because at that time, you know, this this was mid 90s, it came out, and I don't think that I was really familiar with My Bloody Valentine or any, or, you know, Slow Dive or any of those type of bands. And this was the first band that had this like, droney type of guitar heavy with maybe a little less focus on the vocals as there is on the just heaviness of the guitars and just puts you in this mood. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just uh, very moody music well,
1: their name hum literally came from one of their friends saying you should name yourself hum because that's basically what your music does right. so it was like this like even in the band's name it's this acknowledgement of this dissonance and these long drony chords and and you know my first experience with this song was beavis and butthead you know right. beavis and butthead did like an infamous 30 second segment where they mistook the extended note after the first verse as the end of the song and changed the channel.
0: (laughs) You know, this stuff was going on at that time, but it almost also fits into that world of emo before emo became what the definition is today, which is like basically just pop punk music and like, you know, screamy music and stuff. But it was like that sort of mineral, you know, braid type, thing that once again puts you in a certain mood. This whole album, this uh you prefer an astronaut astronaut album is the type of album that you could put on at night while you're driving. You know, just puts you in this certain place and I would put it as like reflecting mood or uh pensive, I guess would be the word yeah, that I would use. I like it. I, I think it's really cool. And I think that, you know, I, I when I was reading up on it, I don't know why I never thought about this because I was familiar with this album. But yeah, it was influence on the Tones. You know, the Tones became just an extreme version of hum in a way. It's not what the Deftones started out as. Uh, but, you know, in later albums, by the time you get to White Pony and things like that, it's, yeah, you hear like the direct influence and maybe it's a little heavier and maybe not that the hum album isn't heavy. The hum album itself, it sounds almost like not a lot of production on it. There's not a lot of uh, over-the-top production. You can hear... The realness and rawness of the recording and the band. And you could tell that, oh, this is what this band's going to sound like if I go see them,
1: and I can talk from like a producer standpoint of this podcast. A lot of times when I'm reaching out to the guests about what song they want to pick, when I hear the song choice, it clicks in my head and it makes a ton of sense. Like I'm like, oh, of course, that they would pick the song. And that's kind of the vibe I had when n dot picked this because, like, knowing the music, of danger club or how i became invisible and you as a songwriter tend to lean into a lot of what hum leaned into which is like non-linear storytelling like more of the conceptual over like a distinct storytelling and then also you know lots of like space analogies and and kind of using Outer worldly concepts to get to like the heart of what you're trying to talk about. That is a hundred percent accurate. <laughs> yeah, so I was going to say, was Hum and the song Stars a big influence on a lot of your songwriting? I wouldn't say very
2: specifically like an influence on my songwriting, but like just it's difficult to say because I I, I hear what you guys are saying about like the deaf tones. I could definitely like I, that didn't occur to me, and now I'm thinking about well, yeah, that definitely sounds white like, like white pony as hell. It's interesting because in retrospect, listening to it, this strikes me as like kind of a proto Jim Eat world too very specifically like their older stuff like if you took clarity and just like kind of dialed up the distortion a bunch i would hear the song fitting on that the chorus the the kind of droned high note is very jimmy world yeah like you think like to like sweetness and stuff like that right and i was like doing research on this and i found an old interview from with the singer that was in a zine from like ninety four ninety five, like before, if you prefer, an astronaut came out where someone asked him, like, "Where do you see yourself fitting in with emo or indie rock?" And the, the dude was very much against it. Really, <laughs> like, he's like, "I don't want to put names on what we do. I don't. I don't mm-hmm. fit in with any of that shit." I'm like, wow, all right, my dude.
0: Yeah, I, I I feel that there was a there was a whole lot of that at that time in late nineties, early two thousands people hated to be called emo, even if they actually were that like late 90s, early 2000s definition of it that is different mm-hmm. than it now. Hated to be called that. And then I think later on, people just accept it and and whatever. But I kind of feel that <laughs> because this sucks to say, I hate the term pop punk. I just think <laughs> it sounds like trivializes like it sounds like an insult honestly it does it does you're like oh you play that pop punk (laughs) right it sounds bad it to me it has a negative connotation and to a lot of people to a lot of bands to a lot of like it's this good thing there are bands that will be that will put like pop punk on there like it'll put the name of the band and pop punk underneath it i'm like oh god like the (laughs) connotation of the connotation of that word to me is just so bad it makes me think of like a kid singing about being grounded by his parents or something like it's it's, when I, I think for me, I, when I think of pop punk, I think of
1: like when it first started being thrown around, it was like describing a band like green day where like, Yeah, like Green Day was a mainstream band, but they weren't that poppy. Like, especially like Insomniac isn't a pop punk band. So in that sense, it just feels like a a sly way to just call them a sellout without directly calling them a sellout.
2: It's interesting because like I've listened to to stuff like Green Day or like even the Descendants back in the day. And I've heard that called pop punk and that blows my mind. But Green Day never struck me as like pop punk. They just sound like punk. Like it's like Buzzcocks. Like, they, they straight up started as a buzzcocks rip-off, basically. Like, you say pop punk, and I think it's stuff like Newfound Glory. Or, like, yeah. very specifically songs about people that are full of misogyny complaining about their exes when they're, yeah. like, 45 years old. And, and, like, no
1: offense, Chris, but I de- when I hear the word pop punk, Fuel by Ramen is definitely one of the record labels well. that pops into my head. So I can kind of get you getting lumped
2: into that. Yeah. But the thing is, I love pop punk. I, I identify my, my bands, to various bands I've been in or am still in. As like pop punk bands, I mean, Robots and Race Cars was was that was a pop punk band. There's no, yeah, I can't get around that. I would say Danger Club's more like post hardcore. A lot of the I time, would, like. I would, I would agree with that. Post hardcore, maybe I would put emo there. Like when I people ask me what my band sound like, I'll say pop punk because that's just the easiest shorthand. But then right. like now it means stuff like you know Wonder Years or. I don't even know who else would like, would modern baseball be considered that? I don't That type of stuff. I guess. Like, it's all over the place. It's kind of fractured. It, it, you could get into like a really larger discussion about genre and the fracturing of said genres.
0: Yeah, it's honestly pretty silly. And at the root of it, like, I love pop music. I love straight up pop music, which is, it, it ends up being a lot of what I listen to. And- I like that and I like punk rock music, but it's just so, something about putting those two words. Maybe it's the alliteration or it's the uh, just the way it rolls off your tongue or something that it's like, ah. Oh. Especially when you're out there trying to create your best songs and you're pouring your heart into them and everything. And then it's like the pop punk band punchline from Pittsburgh. (laughs) It's just like all this alliteration and all this, like, I don't know, I'll complain about it on a podcast, but I'm not going to complain about it in general. I realize that's the umbrella we fall under. My main point being that I understand maybe why hum would be like, yeah, we don't want to be called emo. Like that's another word. That's like weird emo. Yeah, People hated
2: emo like just the terminology of it. And now like my son is 17 and he uses emo just to describe an aesthetic. And We have arguments all that. He's like, that's an emo band. Like my chemical romance is not an emo band. They're, they're an angry punk band who just happens to wear a lot of eyeliner. Emo is a very specific genre that means a very specific thing and people have just expanded it to mean, I don't know, sad sometimes. Well, right. And that's what I
1: hate. It was people were like, you know, emo, like emotional. And it's like, I wouldn't want to listen to any music that wasn't emotional.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like
1: that's like, so it's like when you ask someone their favorite genre and they just say rock and it's like, well, that doesn't describe anything <laughs> to me. Like that's, that's the well, most like wide open interpretation of a genre. My favorite bands are bon
2: jovi marilyn manson jimmy world and uh i don't know 21 pilots is that a thing yeah (laughs) Yeah, that all falls into rock right you know that would be
0: a real quick way to make me lose interest in you know whether it was like from a romantic perspective or whether it was just like being friends with somebody If, if ask them what music they like. And they said, I like everything (laughs) that that's not, that's not, that's the most boring answer you could possibly give to that question. So
2: I like everything. Are you about to say the except country, except country. They'll say everything except country, R and B and classical. Like, okay. So you like the radio.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I got to ask you guys a question because I've never recorded anything in a, in a genuinely professional perspective. And one of the things when I was researching hum that I thought was wild but I don't know if maybe this is like more normal than I expected. was that their eight song demo was all recorded in one to two takes with only vocals being overdubbed. Is that like a,
2: a crazy thing or is that like fairly mm. normal practice for demos? I mean, I, I can see that happening Uh, just cause especially if you're a band starting out and you don't have a lot of money, you want to just get that stuff done. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. For, for demos for sure. Like still to this day, punchline will do that sometimes or even just do the, if it's a demo, if if we're set up for it, maybe we'll do the vocals while we're doing that too. I think there's something to be said for, obviously, most of the time you're going to record one instrument at a time, but. On the last Punchline album, there are several songs where, yeah, we did the vocals separate, but we got in a room together. And what you're hearing is the live instrumentation of that song. And there's something to be said for that. There's something, it brings a little something more uh, when when you're playing together. And of course, you you can still go back and fix little guitar flubs and things like that. But especially coming from the rhythm section of the band, the bass and drums getting to like, play together and feel it out together and be looking at each other and you know there's a there's a lot of things that you lose a little bit of the magic of when you just overdub everything but you know not saying anything against that obviously we do that all the time i remember weston
1: made a big deal about like i think the last album they put out they did it that way and like the back of the album literally had like a breakdown where it's like we recorded these all in a room together if it worked in the 50s i don't see why it can't work in the 90s or something like that like it was like a really weird like hey like fuck it. it like let's just do it
0: right that's cool if you you know i think that's we live in an era where you can be not that good and still release something that sounds good because you've either spent a lot of money on someone to fix it up or you have that knowledge yourself and and that's not to say that a good songwriter and a good player are two different things and I often wonder what I if I had to pick one or the other be the, be the best songwriter or the best player which one would I pick and I I don't know I probably lean songwriter I guess yeah hard uh, saying. but yeah right <laughs> but but then that being said that that you and I, Would then be all for fixing things up in post and Mm -hmm. because we just want to make this song that we wrote that we believe this song is really good sound the best it could possibly sound rather than, you know, in one take playing it flawlessly. I, I don't know. That's a tough question, man, because. You know, on one hand, yeah, of course, I think the songs are the most important part. But man, would I love to sit down at my piano and just fucking rip it up, you know? <laughs> I,
2: I feel like the context matters. Like some, like just, just in. I'm gonna go with, with my own experience. In some some bands I'm in, like we did everything live. Like the first band I was in, we did our entire first two EPs just live to tape, and then overdubbed vocals. And you know, in retrospect, I wouldn't do that. Um, right. But in the band I play bass for take today, our last EP, which we're still working on, we did the bass and the drums live and we're overdubbing everything else. And like that sounds amazing. The stuff I do on my own for how I became visible, that's entirely overdubbed because I do I do everything. There's no way possible right. for me to play guitar, bass, piano, and drums and sing all at the same time. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got the science. Yeah. But <laughs> and I'll sit there and just if the if the part doesn't sound right, I will do it 18, 19, 20, 25 30 times until it sounds the way I want it to. And then sometimes I'm like, no, this needs to sound a little sloppy. One take, we're good. Let's move on. So,
1: one of the things that I thought was really interesting, just because it tapped into my geeky love, is that uh, for promotion of the album, uh, you know, like most bands, they're going out to promote the album. They want to perform on, like, The Tonight Show or whatever. But Hum appeared on The Howard Stern Show and Space Ghost Coast to Coast nice. to promote yes. the album. <laughs>
2: Nice. <laughs> I didn't know that, but that's amazing. That's pretty awesome. I mean, All that's very own brand for them too, just with yeah. you know, space and whatnot. Right.
0: <laughs> you know, th- this song, when I, I'm looking at this, it's it's probably right on the border of being able to be called a hit. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it, it peaked at number 11 on the hot modern rock charts and 28 on mainstream rock. But I don't see anything about it being in top 40 in general yes. or anything like that. It was more just like the rock charts. Because when you look at the time that this song came out, the modern rock charts, number one was Misery by Soul Asylum, which I don't even know that song. You, <laughs> you, you my do. Favorite,
1: that's my favorite Soul Asylum song. <laughs> you you oh, know I mean. that song? You don't realize you know it. So I it's have to explain. So, it's yeah. the one that the, the hook Frustrated line is. Frustrated, yeah, incorporated. Yeah, that's okay, the hook yeah, of the yeah. song. Uh, So, so the list that you're about to give billboard is really weird with what stuff they leave in their archives and what stuff that they don't. So like the modern, I had to like do a ton of research to figure this out. So hot modern rock charts is like brand new artists that are like up and coming. And uh-huh. then the mainstream rock is like all of it, like bands that have been around for years, plus like the up and coming bands. Right. But they don't show any of those archives. All you can find out is what was the number one song on those charts uh-huh. during specific weeks. So during the time that the, that hum was on the modern rock charts, these were all the songs that hit number one in that tenure. <laughs>
0: gotcha. So like another one, you ought to know, Alanis Morissette. Yep. Great song. Uh, J A R by Green Day. I was surprised. My oh, favorite wow. Green Day song. Same is my
1: absolute Up favorite there. Green Day song.
0: Definitely Dude, out there. so good. And one so of the only
1: good. ones written by Mike. My, Mike really? wrote some great jams. Yeah,
0: I never knew that. That's <laughs> yeah. so cool. And yeah, and now that you say that, I mean the bassline's amazing. Obviously, <laughs> it's like the what stands out in that song. Uh but man that's cool. I didn't even know that. Nice. Nice job Mike.
1: And and, and then hold me throw me kiss me kill me by U2 from the for uh Batman, Batman right? Forever soundtrack. Yeah. That's that's a couple baggers right
0: there. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good time for the uh modern rock charts, I guess, or the hot modern rock charts or whatever it was. Um, I
1: when when I was researching the chart information in general, I was like, man, this just reminds me that even like between rock and even like the stuff that was just the biggest singles of that year, like man, 95 had some just 95 was a great year for music. Yeah. I I mean,
0: that's 94, you know, we in punchline, we did that songs from 94 and trying to narrow that down in a year where, you know, in a year where Dookie and the blue album both came out and like, it was just crazy trying to narrow down all what songs we're going to do. Uh, Oh, well, you know, there's Beck and there's uh, Cranberries and there, you know, Gin Blossoms, all these like amazing albums and songs came out at that time. And it kind of carried over into ninety five, too, for sure. Uh, And movies, you know, we talk about the movies that came out at that time where you got a year, the same year as. Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump and Shawshank Redemption and uh, you know, I think Dazed and Confused was in there somewhere. It was just yeah.
1: I've I've said this before that I find the 90s to be a really interesting time period because I feel like it's one of the few times where the most critically successful stuff was also the most commercially successful stuff. Like, yeah, that doesn't happen a lot.
0: Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind podcast. Right, <laughs> you
1: know right. What i mean like a lot of time the critics are given you know their 10 microphones to some album that no one remembers three years later because like <laughs> justin bieber had every hit single on the top 10 that year. you know like yeah but like the 90s it was like whatever was well reviewed was also like selling really really well
0: yeah it's pretty cool i mean i see that the biggest singles in general that year were like gangsta's paradise was number one overall yeah. Which that's but, uh, that was
2: huge at that time <laughs> yeah
0: uh Michael Jackson, You Are Not Alone. Not really the best Michael Jackson song. <laughs>
2: it's true. I know the title. I can't like I can't bring the song up in my head. Like I recognize yeah, like, it, but I'm not like, Oh, like, I know that
0: one. You are not
2: alone. That was on
1: his like he did this weird album called History. Yeah. And it yeah. was the the cover diffed. was
2: like the the big statue of him, right? Yeah, yeah so
1: the first disc was his greatest hits and then the second disc was like all new songs and it like there was like a track that featured notorious big on it like it was it was a weird album the one that uh i think we'll eventually be able to do an episode well two i guess well uh, now shaggy was not a one-hit wonder shaggy boombastic was big at that time but uh take that i'm pretty sure back to good was the only hit for them in the states but, but i loved back, that song
0: back for good <laughs> is that is that the one that's until you're back here, baby. No, that's B.B. No? Mac. <laughs> okay. This one is, uh, Whatever
1: I said, <laughs> I'll tell you I'm wrong oh. and I mean it. I just want you back for good. I don't good. know if I remember that one. But. Yeah, it was Robbie Wilson, Uh, oh, uh Robbie Williams, oh. his his band before he went solo. Oh, nice. Okay. Maybe we yeah. will check it out.
0: I mean, as far as Hum goes, yeah, that that was the mix that they were in. I see the, the common story about how the song got heavy play on K Rock, which seemed to be the the end all be all to decide if your band was big or not. Um, I produce a podcast for Chris from and Jake, and that seems to be a common theme with the guests that we had on there. Like we had John Feldman from Goldfinger was on, and he talked about how you know K Rock gave him forty five spins a week, and that was it. They knew they were going to sell a million albums, you know, and that that seemed to be like that that one radio station had so much power because Mm -hmm. you get played on K rock, then, you know, all the other K rocks of all the other cities, because LA seems to be this trendsetter of what's going to be the next big thing would just, you know, also pile on to that. So that was like such a big thing to get played on K rock. And it seems like once it got play on K rock, hum stars, it led to RCA signing them. And uh, yeah, and it says in here that the drummer gives credit to K-Rock for, you know, the song being a hit and probably any success that the band had. That's pretty wild, the power that radio had at that time. And I'm sure that radio still has some power, but I think a lot of that power has been taken away by, you know, the Internet.
2: Yeah, I feel (laughs) like the power radio has now is just to make something background noise at this point because a lot of people don't listen to the radio if they're in their car they got podcasts they have their personalized uh, mp3 players or iPhones Android whatever you use Pandora Spotify Apple music all that stuff that that there's no I don't, I don't there's there's no way for people to discover music unless they're actively looking for it where like the radio could do that before you'd be listening to like oh i love the smashing pumpkin song and then suddenly wait what's this and it's like i don't know super drag or hum or some band i've never heard of and then i just deep dive into that stuff right you you don't really do that anymore because everything's so pre-programmed and it's it's decided by an algorithm like okay we're going to play this song at this time every day
1: i feel like weirdly what's been the stuff that i've discovered recently is like weirdly songs in commercials. You know what I mean? Like, if I hear a song in a commercial that I really, really like, you know, you do a little bit of Googling and you find out, like, oh, it's this song by this artist. And then I can, like, go on Spotify and listen to their music and be like, oh, I really, really like this group. But, yeah, you're right. There's not... You have to really do a lot of research to find new bands. Or, I mean, be one of those weirdos who... Well, I guess a lot of people do it. But go every week, go on their Spotify, like, hot jams... (laughs) (laughs) this week playlist but it's like the same 20 songs and then they'll switch out like 10 of them every week yeah yeah
0: i kind of think that those playlists are doing in a way doing the same thing that that radio does and and i probably i think that k-rock probably still has that power you know I, i still think that that's hitting so many people's ears that it probably still does have that that sway but those playlists now you know, whether it's your Apple music, you know, I use Apple music. So I see like, Oh, I have my hot new music mix. And then there's chill mix. And there's like, it even knows like what styles of music I like. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I still think that there's some person behind pushing for these, you know, people from labels pushing to get the bands onto these playlists much oh, like, definitely. much like, you know, they would do that w- with radio. And, and once again, you know, it was interesting hearing when we had, a. Jarrett from Bowling for Soup on Chris's podcast, he talked about how, you know, they would make deals and, you know, they talk about payola is what they called it. But once once people got busted for that and you couldn't actually do the exchange of money, they would do things like trade some sort of contest. Like they, they use the example of a Britney Spears flyaway. Like we'll we'll fly two of your listeners to a Britney Spears concert somewhere if you'll play this band so many times per week or whatever. So they made these deals, which in a way were still payola. (laughs) And, and, you know, and it's a bummer for bands and artists out there who are trying to pave their own way and, and, and working hard, but don't have that, don't have that person who's, who's doing that. And that's where music becomes a business. I guess that's, you know, I mean,
2: that's the experience I have in that I, I put up on my, I self-record and self-release all my, music for how it became invisible and i distribute through uh distro Kid. right and you can go through that to spotify and there's like a place where oh you're releasing new music hey why don't you submit this and we'll see if we could put it on playlists and i've been right. doing this for i want to say two and a half years and i have released probably too much music in the last two and a half years and i have never been made it on a playlist and yeah. i'm trying to decide how do they decide that do they do they actually look at these messages I put in there? Or is it just like the well, computer so, going, eh,
1: no, no, thank you. So here's, here's like my dumbass thought. I didn't realize that like those playlists are being designed specifically for me. Like it's not just like, hey, this playlist of new songs is like what every single person LinkedIn Spotify gets. So like I would see punchline songs pop in there and I'd be like, oh man, punchline's about to pop off. They're like on this yeah. Spotify playlist. And then I'd be like, oh wait, no. It's recognizing that I listen to Punchline a lot on Spotify and is going like, hey, they put out a new single. Check
2: it out. So there's a couple different versions. There's that which is user generated. They go look at your habits and be like, "Okay, you'd like this. Here's this. But then there's also like uh, curated or edit editorial playlists where they choose what's on it. And that goes out to everybody.
0: Those are what you want to get on. You know, Punchline's been on a few of those and it makes a world of difference, you know. And but also you hear a lot of stories about this. There will be these bands that will get onto those playlists and get millions of plays and then go to one of their shows and there's nobody there.
2: Yeah. (laughs) It's an empty arena. You know, that's, that feels feels normal to me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, you would think like, Oh, this band has 5 million plays on this song. Like, and then you go to the show and there's 20 people there that, it, you know, that's a, a common story now. So what I'm saying is like these Spotify plays and whatever, it doesn't always mean that that band is big. Whereas if you're getting played 55 times a week on K rock, you were going to play huge shows and yeah. people were going to, so I don't know if, if it quite has the same power as radio did or maybe still does in certain places, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, back to like the, the thing I was saying about how radio or how commercials sometimes are like the way I discovered new music. Uh, in 2008, they sold 26,000 digital copies of the song Stars. And it was I, hypothesized by Rolling Stone magazine that it was due to the fact that the song had just started to appear in Cadillac commercials. There's definitely something to be said about like, if your song is somewhere where people cannot avoid it, be it the radio, be it Spotify playlist, or even just like a a Cadillac commercial. That's get getting played every hour on the hour. Like there, there is a higher chance of people going, Ooh, I like that. I'm going to go and check that out. And, but again, uh, if you don't have those, those routes, it is just like, well, I got to search out new music. I got to find something. Which that's,
2: that's what I do. I've been doing this project this entire year where I, I use Apple music as well. And, um, they have like a suggested for you section in it. And I'll go through that every day. And like, I'll pick, oh, I haven't heard of that. I haven't heard of that. I haven't heard of that. And every day I'm listening to at least one album or artist I haven't listened to before. Like I get stuck in the idea of like, oh, I like these bands. I'm only going to listen to that. I'm going to listen to Alkaline Trio, The Wonder Years, The Semperists, and oh, I don't know, Something Metal. And like trying to break myself out of that. I've discovered so much stuff I've never heard of.
0: I do that too. You know, you, you find out things... lot of times from, from friends, people whose music taste you trust will suggest something to you. I do that with my bandmates. Um, we know what each other likes. My bandmate, Steve, he's, he's been killing it this year on telling me like, Hey, I know you're going to love this. And like, he'll send, send it to me. And then I'm like, well, yep. I love King princess. Oh, yep. I love local natives. Like these, these bit, every time he said, like for some reason he just, he's like my curator or something. He knows if it's, slightly uh if it's a unique strange artist with pop sensibilities and and some heavy bass <laughs> i'm I'm probably gonna like it you know if it's a <laughs> if it's some sexy r and b with pop appeal in it, you know i'm probably gonna like it your friends tend to know you that's my favorite way to find out about music is that way, but I also lately have been checking out those apple music playlists because yeah, if you fall into the same listening to the same music all the time and and then it's time to listen to music which for me is literally 24 hours a day like yep. i need music on at all times or my brain starts to glitch a little bit especially yep. in now now like the time we're living in right now i can't be in silence yes. i have to have i'm talking about While I'm sleeping at night, like the last couple of nights, it's like, okay, I'm putting this new Phoebe Bridgers on all night just, and I wake up listening to the same album. I will go crazy. (laughs) So that being said, I need variety. I need new stuff or else the same stuff just becomes background noise and uh, doesn't make me feel as much and i don't want to wear things out ruin them and not have that feeling when i listen to things which i tend to do i don't know if you guys do that but it could be a song or an album or something and i will play it to i'll play i'll listen to the same song over and over and over just on repeat and then wear it out you know then it doesn't have the same effect which i hate that i do that
2: but I so mean, I, I i definitely do that i don't want to Calculate how many times I've listened to LCD sound systems, all my friends, because I've listened to that song probably on repeat like seven or eight times multiple days. So so one of the things that um, I think we're also forgetting
1: about, and I know that I've talked to Chris about this before, but I don't think we ever talked about on the air, but the importance and the power of like compilations. Like yeah. buying comp CDs, like buying mm-hmm. the songs from the penalty Box or the punk Punkaramas mm-hmm. or like any of that stuff where you could just walk into a Hot Topic and it's right there at the counter for like $3 and it's got 40 songs on it. Like I found so many bands from being like, well, I know one artist on this and I'll just assume that the other 39 artists are in the similar vein. So let's see how many of these I really get into. I mean, oh, yeah, those were
2: yeah, hard, oh, hard, yeah. re- really like another year on the streets. Volume two is like the roadmap of the music I like now for the most part. (laughs) Yeah,
0: That was a vagrant one, right? Yeah. 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 Oh man. Yeah. Vagrant one that
2: had uh, it had alkaline trios. Hell yes on it, which is one of, I want to say one of the best songs ever written, but
0: you know, these playlists that we're talking about that has kind of become what those were, but those were at a time where that was it. Like, Oh, I, you have this CD, you have this, whatever, 18 songs on it. And you could listen to those 18 songs. You didn't instantly have access to all the music in the world on your phone at all times. You know that those days are gone now. You know a comp. First of all, no one wants a CD. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I, I talk to people about, dude, I have boxes of CDs in my basement. What, what is ever going? What is ever going to happen with those? No one even. You can't even give them to people. People don't have uh, CD players. Oh, I know. I mean, I'll take. A, I'll
1: take a couple off. Of- <laughs> I know. You, I know you still.
0: I know you still collect them. But but in general, if you're playing a show or something, people don't want those. You yeah. don't want to carry yeah. that thing
1: around. So let's talk about to get it back to hum. Like stars comes out, it does moderately well. The follow up singles do nothing. The band's follow up downward is heavenward, which was the first album I knew of them because of Alternative Press Magazine used to do an issue that was like like the class, like in, in say 2008, they would do the class of 98 where they would reflect on like 10 incredible records from 10 years ago that you should own. And that was like one of the records they picked for the class of 98. But that album sold nothing. And then the way that it was described in Wiki was that the band's van had a minor in- accident but it was the last straw and they just declared that the next two shows they were playing were their last ones. So they blew um, a
2: tire on 95 and they were just like, nah, fuck it. We're done. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Basically. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for having the success of being like, I don't know, on MTV and, you know, at least on the periphery of pop culture, like everybody I know who listened to to rock music around that time knows who hum is that album cover with the zebra on it is very iconic Mm -hmm. of that era. And to just put out one more album and be like, ah, we're done. Like, I don't know, man, that's kind of weak. I'm always talking about that. A lot is like, you know, I feel like I've really stuck it out. (laughs) You know, me and a lot of people I know stuck it out with music through good times, bad times, never always, striving to write better songs always striving to hit more people in the ears with them and to just like have that su- that that success as as minor as they might consider it and just be like ah eh, fuck it like i don't know that's like so who, who knows what was going on in their lives you know there could be that kind of factors but
2: yeah and, and, like I, I read through the wiki as well it just seems like they had a lot of turnover, and it just listen because I listened to their older albums as well. The was it Philat Philat Station Philat Show and yes. uh, Electra Two Thousand, and there was a marked like difference between their first album and the rest of their stuff, which is based upon there was another guy who was a songwriter with them as well who left at some point, and the Electra Two Thousand is when they started getting into the more spacey themes and so forth. But they'd been doing it since like the what the late eighties? Yeah, I think eighty nine. So yeah. maybe they were just like over it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I guess there's some people. Maybe maybe they got a lucky break, got played on K Rock. Their song kind of got bigger. Maybe their intentions weren't to do that forever. <laughs> you know, I guess not everyone is like I'm playing music till I'm dead. You know, that's kind of <laughs> my it's kind of my attitude about it. But I can't expect everyone to to think that same way. I guess and and uh, you know they made they made some pretty cool music. So I got to give them credit. Usually usually these one hit wonders that we do on here. A lot of them, it's like, eh, I was all right. I would never listen to that album, but hum, actually, would listen to the, did, would, and will again, listen to this album, and and that's why I'm gonna go ahead, and on the the one hit thunder to one hit blunder scale, I'm gonna give this a thunder, no doubt, and I am oh, absolutely, you guys probably are too, right?
2: Yeah, I would I would put them up with the, with the in terms of like one hit wonders, I put them up with uh, Harvey Danger and Superdrag in terms of like. Bands, I heard the one song and then said, oh, I like all their stuff now.
0: Right. Yeah. Right.
2: So so question about, since
1: you brought up Super Drag, here's a game that we played on the Super Drag episode that we haven't played since. But uh, do either one of you want to take a guess on how many monthly listeners Hum has
0: on Spotify? Hmm, That's a good question. Because I think it's only one song that, I think it's only this song that people would really be. Super Drag. Wasn't Super Drag... Not that many. It was
1: equal to punchlines monthly listens at that point. If
0: that's the case, I I would say Hum is probably fifty thousand. That's my guess.
2: And Dot, you want to give one? I would say like eighty, eighty thousand. We'll say that.
1: So their actual monthly listeners still is one hundred and four thousand nine hundred and seventeen. Wow. So yeah, not bad. Not bad How at all. many I
2: have? Hold on, I'm going to look up to see how many my band. has.
1: <laughs> but yeah, so so the song "Stars" is far and away the most listened to, with eight million listens. The second most popular is one million. The song "The Pod" and then the rest are under a million. Right. That
2: sounds about right.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's what. That's, that's what I would have figured. A true one hit. I mean, I guess if they're getting eight million plays on Spotify, that that's a hit. That's are uh, a true one-hit wonder. Cool, man. Thanks for being on this episode, man. You Thank picked you the for you having picked me. the winner. You picked the real winner.
2: Some good shit.
0: Hell yeah. Now that
2: we're for another to end.
1: This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is produced by Matt Kelly as part of the Geekscape Network and hosted by Chris Fallius of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah. Thanks to our guest, N. Dot, this week. Check out their bands, Danger Club and How I Became Invisible. Their new single, Setsoma, is playing underneath me right now. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app, and tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder.
0: You're listening to the Geekscape Network.